We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, our host Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by Nicholas Smith from the UK's Telegraph. Good evening. And on the telephone by regular commentator Donovan Smith in Taichung. And good evening. Tonight we'll be discussing the pending relaxation of face mask rules, the opening up of more places to more people, a plan for so-called epidemic prevention tours to lead a revival for the local tourism sector, the US Senate passing a bill calling on the Secretary of State to outline a strategy to help Taiwan regain observer status at the World Health Assembly, a World Health Organization official, though, insisting that it's against the rules for Taiwan to attend the annual health bodies meeting, a secret MOU which apparently was signed between the World Health Organization and China, a new ambassador to Paraguay amid concerns that ties with the South American country are possibly on shaky ground, possible KMT candidates to replace Han Guoyu in Kaohsiung if he loses the recall vote, a survey showing people are prepared to pay higher electricity rates if it means green energy sources, and a sport being played in Taiwan at the moment that's getting attention overseas that employs a bat and a ball, but is not baseball. But we'll begin with the latest coronavirus news from here in Taiwan over the past week where Health Minister and Central Epidemic Command Centre Head Chen Shijong removed his face mask on Tuesday during his regular coronavirus briefing and clear dividers were used for the first time. They were placed on the desk where the officials sit and basically Chen made a bit of a joke saying that, well, he hadn't shown his face to the public for a very long time. Now, as the time we're recording this show, Taiwan has gone 32 days without any domestic infections and a full week without any new coronavirus cases being reported also, meaning the total number of cases here in Taiwan continues to stand at 440. Now, Deputy Central Epidemic Command Centre Director He Chi Gong on Monday said that officials are now discussing the possible relaxation of face mask rules on public transport due to the decline in coronavirus cases. And He said that the command centre understands that the wearing of face masks as the temperature rises in the summer months is inconvenient. But he also added that concerns remain as the outbreak continues in other countries and preventive measures are still necessary. Necessary. Now, the command centre also loosened social distancing restrictions on wedding banquets this week, with health officials saying that up to 250 people will be allowed to attend weddings, and that's up from the current 100. While the local baseball league is now allowed, from today in fact, to have 2,000 fans in stadiums to watch the matches. Now, while those relaxations were being discussed and put into a basically put into place. Transport Minister Lin Jialong announced that his office is preparing for eased travel restrictions and something that he called epidemic prevention tours. Now, Lin says details outlining the new guidelines on travel and tourism will be made public following next week's presidential inauguration. But the minister says epidemic prevention tours were based on regulations that will allow people to travel around Taiwan without the danger of contracting the coronavirus. Now, elsewhere, the government expressed its gratitude to the US Senate for passing a bill that asked Secretary of State Mike Pompeo to outline a strategy to help Taiwan regain observer status at the World Health Assembly. The bill directs the Secretary of State to develop a strategy to regain observer status for Taiwan at the WHO and also to present a report to the Senate following any annual meetings of the WHA at which Taiwan did not obtain such status. Now, the bill also praises Taiwan as a model contributor to world health. And the Ministry of Foreign Affairs slammed the World Health Organization's principal legal 
legal officer Stephen Solomon this week after he told reporters that there's no mandate for its members to invite Taiwan to the World Health Assembly, regardless of the American bill asking that to happen. Now, according to Solomon, the WHO Director General cannot invite Taiwan to join the WHA meeting this year as invitations only extended when it's clear that member states support doing so. The WHO official went on to say that there is currently no clear support among member states and as such there's no basis for the Director General to invite Taiwan to the party. Foreign Ministry here basically said that that's absolute baloney and the Director General of the WHO does have the discretionary power to invite observers to the WHA. And if that wasn't enough, Joseph Wu, who's the current Foreign Minister but might not be after next week due to a pending Cabinet reshuffle, announced that a secret Memorandum of Understanding signed in 2005 between the WHO and China is directly basically responsible for Taiwan's being banned participation at the World Health Assembly and related events. Now, according to Wu, Taiwan first learned about the existence of the said deal in 2007, and it stipulates apparently that Taiwan has to apply for WHO technical assistance through China, and that all exchanges between Taiwan and the global health body first be approved by Beijing. So, where to begin? Let's begin with the face mask rules, Donovan, and, of course, we've got this thing called Epidemic Prevention Tourism. Well, <laughs> I, 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 picking a good name, wow, that's a really fun kind of tourism. You know, I, I, when I think about, you know, all the kind of fun things that I want to do when I go and, uh, on uh, a tourism, you know, you know, to take a vacation, I want to make sure that it's themed around epidemic prevention. Um, but fundamentally right now, Taiwan has gone for over a month with no domestic transmission. All the cases that have happened in the last month have been imported. Everybody has been, who's been coming back into the country has been quarantined. So it does appear now that right now we're fairly safe. There doesn't appear to be any domestic transmission at all. It seems like from all, you know from everything that the government is telling us right now that there is no risk for us to be going out. So it seems like it's a pretty good time to start opening up some of these things, keeping in mind maybe some basic precautions. And keeping in mind, it could all go badly wrong, Nicola. It could, but, you know, we could also be hit by an asteroid. I think you've got to be um, sensible and just get a balance, really. And, you know, as Donovan said, Taiwan has been doing really well um, so far. It's not the time to get complacent at the same time. You can't live uh, in a restricted society forever. You have to keep the economy going and you have to get that balance where the tourism sector does need revenue. Um, there are a lot of jobs dependent um, on this sector. And I think, it's, um, I think it's good for people to get back to normal life um, when they can. And, and the, the CECC has been very good at communicating um, since January, you know, the do's and don'ts um, of the pandemic, the public's been able to follow that, and I, I think you know they've they've they really have a trusted reputation. So if they're saying that it's okay to to get back um, on trains and and start going to tourist spots, then I would trust their their judgment. But will you be attending a baseball game with one thousand nine hundred ninety nine other people? Uh, I'd have to like baseball first, but yeah, um, I, I wouldn't mind actually. It, it, it would, um, I would, I'd be up for that. It, it'd be quite a fun thing to do. I, I think we're all starting to miss um, live sports, really, regardless of what they are. And Donovan, would you be heading off to a place with one thousand nine hundred ninety-nine other people at the moment, or do you think you'll be waiting a bit? Uh, well, for the brothers' elephants, I might um, definitely. That would be. Uh, 
I, I do kind of miss those games. Um, it'd be, it would be nice to be able to go back out there. I mean, I can, another thing I can add here is that even if they open up all the tourism locally, they're still missing out on a lot of uh, a lot of tourism. There, were, there was a piece that came out the other day in, in Focus talking about the hit to the hotel industry and the the amount that they've lost out of the out of domestic customers hasn't been massive the the biggest hit is international tourism and that's not going to come back at all for quite some time uh they lost it was something like 400,000 in the first quarter from uh local tur- local tourism and local business travel but they lost a, a million out of international so even if they open up the floodgates locally Business-wise, there's still, for a lot of businesses, like in the tourism industry, particularly hotels, international business and tourism travel, that's not going to come back. So it's still going to be a depressed market regardless. And when do you see you know, if, if they keep coming up with really fun themes, however, like epidemic prevention tours, you know, then where everyone's going to get really excited and, and go out because, you know, who wouldn't want to go on an epidemic prevention tour? With a hazmat suit. No, they're not giving out hazmat suits. That was a perverse joke. But, Nicola, I mean, do you see tourism, international tourism coming back this year? Because, of course, there's been some great debate about when international tourism will return to the world. Uh, Well, it's really hard to imagine it coming back um, this year or being restored in full. I I mean, there has been um, talk of creating bubbles, which seems to be a, a, a sensible way forward, although it be incredibly... Uh, diplomatically sensitive. Um, you've you've got um, New Zealand and Australia talking about creating this Tasman bubble. Um, there's been questions about whether Taiwan could maybe join that or could join um, something more regionally with with Vietnam or or Singapore. Uh, you've also got the Baltic nations are talking about creating their own bubble. It's going to be an incredibly hard process to come back to normal tourism and travel levels because everyone's at a different stage and and how. How do you mitigate that? As soon as um, borders open, then cases start to rise. Um, it's going to be a very politically tricky question about whether to open up your borders to China and the US and other European countries that are, have been very badly affected by the coronavirus. Ryan, there, there is some good news on that, though. Um, they they talk about I believe it's August that they, July or August that they want to launch the they've come out with those tests that take about fifteen minutes with about eighty percent accuracy and to test if somebody does have if somebody is infected and if they can apply those tests if they can take two tests and process that within fifteen minutes prior to somebody getting on a plane then with a fairly high degree of confidence then you could actually have tourism happening again right and we talked about a delicate political question there and there was one of course this week donovan when the u.s senate passed yet another bill for taiwan this one saying that they should be allowed to join the wha but i mean is this just more of the same well, yes, it is. And it, it, the thing with these, these Senate or, or U.S. Congress resolutions is when they pass these things, it's both wonderfully mon- monumental, wonderfully supportive, and kind of symbolic and pointless all at the same time. It, it, it's monumental and important in the sense that it, it is one of the main, it is one of the three branches of government of the United States, the one that represents the will of the people, 
and uh, it does have an influence on the executive branch. But it's always the way that they pass these bills, of course, is that they they put they put the the real actual onus is on the executive branch. And so the real question is whether or not the executive branch will actually do anything about it. And that's really kind of what it boils down to. So it, it's symbolically very, very important. In practical terms, it does mean that the State Department now has some more work on their plate, but it's work that is supportive of Taiwan. Well, of course, Nicola, Donald Trump turned around and said, we're not going to give the WHO any money, so why should the WHO listen to a word that the Trump administration is saying vis-à-vis Taiwan? Well, that's a very good question, really, that um, the US have undermined um, <clears throat> their own uh, their own moves at, at this stage. Um, you can't, on one hand, um, threaten to take away the funding, and on the other hand, can really... Um, push your views on, on that same organisation. Um, I, I, I think when it comes to Taiwan, um, it's good to have US support, but I think there needs to be support from other like-minded nations um, as well. If, if Taiwan has, has, is going to have a chance to, to have a seat, at the, even as a, an observer at the WHA, um, you need to have other countries stepping up um, and not just the US, because the danger at the moment with the US is that the Taiwan issue becomes um, caught up in its diplomatic spat with China over the, the virus and who's to blame. Um, and the, the kind of increasing tensions between Beijing and Washington, um, uh, you know, it's it's. Taiwan is in danger of getting caught up in the middle of that. And Taiwan... Um, it should be sitting at the WHA out of its own merits, um, you know, not as a political pawn in this. It, it, it has um, it, it has a lot to offer the World Health Assembly, and it has a lot to offer in terms of pandemic responses. So it, it should really, I think, it should really be other countries stepping up at the moment to to push Taiwan's case. There have been a lot of countries which have been stepping up, and I think that this uh, this WHA assembly is going to be very, very revealing, because what's happening is you've got a whole series of countries which have now come out in support of Taiwan. Uh, this includes uh, the U.S., the U.K., Japan, Germany, uh, Australia, New Zealand, uh, Lithuania joined the other day. Um, and so I think what, what we're going to see and what's going to shake out over the next, because it, it's coming up in three or four days now, uh, this WHA assembly. And, of course, Taiwan's uh, diplomatic partners, the ones that do diplomatically recognize Taiwan, they've all stepped up. And so what we're going to see over, I think, you know, during that assembly is we're gonna, going to see those countries which are willing to stand up in principle for Taiwan, and we're going to see who is cowering under Beijing's yoke. And that's going to become very, very clear uh, during that World Health Assembly. But I think it's also a wake-up call for the U.S., because the U.S. is so used to being top dog at, at these kind of institutions, and and it's, it's belatedly realizing that actually China is way more influential behind the scenes. Um, and it seems to be scrambling now to, to try and assert itself, while at the same time uh, the Trump administration, well, Donald Trump himself, has been doing a lot to undermine these UN institutions and, and, and talk them down.
And of course, this year's WHA is by a video conference, which basically means if someone says something you don't like, you simply get up and turn off the set, so to speak. There's going to be no, no heated discussion in a room, is my point there. Well, Twitter, I mean, Twitter's already taking over with diplomacy anyway, so maybe that's just the, the way forward, isn't it? Everyone's just going to be uh, doing their diplomacy online, which has its merits and its downfalls. I, I, not me, I'll still be shouting at people. Anyway, Donovan, <laughs> this secret this secret memorandum of understanding mentioned by Joseph Wu this week. Yeah, well, it's interesting that it was basically, and it was between China and the WHO. Nobody else was involved as far as the report goes. Uh, Taiwan obviously wasn't consulted. It doesn't appear that the U.S. was involved, and it's the major funder of the WHO. And so it begs kind of the question, why did the WHO sign this thing? With China, China was a relatively small donor within the WHO at the time. So how did China get such a heavy influence? There's a lot of questions around that that kind of don't make a lot of sense, really. I mean, I'd like to see it first. It's already obvious that the WHO is acting in in China's interests when it comes to to Taiwan, even with or without a, a memo. But... Um, I have heard talk of this memo before, and I, I think if it's if it's out there, it'd be good to to um, make it public to to kind of show in black and white what everyone already knows and everyone already suspects that that China is calling the shots at the WHO when it comes to when it comes to Taiwan. Um, at the end of the day, I don't think an actual memo makes much much difference. It, it's just um, yeah, something to to maybe um, uh, prove the point to the skeptics. And of course, Donovan, we had the um, chief legal officer of the WHO this week saying there's no point in asking for Taiwan to come because apparently we don't have to. Yeah, well, the point that he was trying to make was that there's no consensus among member states. And basically, because before, of course, Taiwan was invited and by, by the director general, no problem. Basically, what the what the legal the the legal representative was saying is by no consensus he means China says no. That's really what it boils down to. Uh, as as long as China says yes, Taiwan gets some has somebody that can send a representative. The director general has a coast clear to invite Taiwan. If China says no, then oh, there's disagreement among the member states. And of course, it comes back to that MOU, which again, why is the WHO beholden to this one country in such a, a, a staggering degree? That's the part that's really kind of galling and maddening about it. I mean, it seems like the the WHO is is tying itself in legal knots to to hide its politics um, because the the legal advisor keeps going back to this. UN Resolution 2758 that that says that um, the PRC is the sole representative of China at, at the at the WHA, um, but Taiwan's foreign ministry makes a very good point that it says nothing about Taiwan's attendance. I mean, it, it's not as if Taiwan wants to attend as China. Taiwan wants to attend as Taiwan. Um, so it's very disingenuous to, to use these resolutions, um, failing to, to note that. Um, and the WHA's own rules of procedure does grant the, the discretion, the discretionary powers to the um, 
to the WHO itself, to the to the president. Um, so to refuse to do that is a political call in itself. Bureaucrats. There's one word for that. I think. I think maybe they should put doctors in charge of the WHO. Wouldn't that always make sense to me? They're, it's a it's a health organisation. Shouldn't it be run by doctors and not boring, arrogant bureaucrats? I think it should be run by scientists. Absolutely. I mean, you know, straight talking, non political scientists, and then the world might be a, a more simple and better place. Then there'd be consensus globally and we'd all be happy playing with balloons. Anyway, we shall move on from that point (laughs) uh, because the Ministry of Foreign Affairs this week confirmed Jose Han as the country's new ambassador to Paraguay. Now, of course, the basically the announcement came, though, as there's some questions over diplomatic ties with the South American country being, well, might be a bit questionable because basically... Paraguayan lawmakers are pressuring the government in Ascension to sever ties in Taipei in favour of Beijing. Now, backers of that bill in Paraguay claim that China could better aid the country in the fight against the coronavirus. But Paraguayan senators voted down the proposal on April the 17th via a vote of 25 to 16. And Foreign Minister Joseph Wu is denying reports that Taiwan's formal diplomatic ties with Paraguay are entering a crisis period. And he said that the South American country continues to support Taiwan. So, Donovan, we haven't talked about the possible severance of diplomatic ties with the country in quite a while. Yeah, and this is one of those situations where if you follow all of the coverage of this issue, uh, including, you know, the one in America's quarterly and local press, and if you follow all of it closely, it definitely, you're able to come to a very, very firm conclusion that who knows. Um... The what's come out of, for example, in the, the America Quarterly's article, which first reported the the vote in 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 Paraguay, it basically said there's a lot of pressure from farmers and for for tie you know for to change ties to China and dump Taiwan. There was absolutely no interviews, no polling, no you know heads of farmers representations the representative organizations there was nothing backing it up it was just simply an assertion by the author so the author may be 100% correct there may be a lot of pressure within paraguay from farmers and other groups of people to shift a uh, shift to recognizing china or there may not be it just may be the author saying it then we we get the reports out of taiwan the foreign minister here uh saying oh well it would be deeply unpopular saying that you know the the popular opinion in in paraguay is for maintaining ties again no polling nothing to back it up just simply an assertion from ministry of foreign affairs and so what i thought was an interesting detail was the there was talk that it was a it was from a left-wing political party within Paraguay. Now, historically, there was the military dictatorship, the Strassner dictatorship, which ended in 89. Uh, martial law here ended in 87, and the period of mobilization against the communists ended in 91 here. But there was very, very strong ties between the military government there and the martial law dictatorship here. And so there may be some very strong historical reasons why the opposition leftist political party would want to recognize China over Taiwan. But the thing is, is we don't know how much popular support this has, because right now all we've got is some people 
talking heads saying one thing or another. We don't really have any proof one way or another. Another thing is they did apparently rotate out, even though they said it was a regular move, they rotated out the ambassador earlier than is normal uh, to Paraguay. So that's interesting. So there may be trouble here, or there may not. Really what it all boils down to is it's really hard to say. Well, there we go. Profound conclusions. Yes. <laughs> but, Nicola, I mean, obviously the inauguration of President Tsai Ing-wen for her second term is next week. I mean, wouldn't China love it if basically three days after she was inaugurated, Paraguay said, sayonara Taipei? Oh, I'm sure Beijing would love that. But I think Taiwan perhaps maybe needs to care a little bit less. Um, I think there should be less hand-wringing about, um, you know, the the impact of losing an ally um, and more focus on how Taiwan is actually shining at the moment internationally. Um, it's inevitable that Taiwan is going to lose more allies and, and I think that's just something that the government has to um, uh, create a strategy of how to, how to sell a better message to the public um, because you know, Taiwan through this pandemic has really been showing itself um, even more so as as an important and responsible international player. Um, they're getting a lot of credit for that from um, countries that are not necessarily formal allies, but countries which do have a lot of clout. Um, and the US, Europe, um, New Zealand, Australia, they're really sitting up and noticing Taiwan a lot more. And that's a message that the Taiwanese government can sell to the public rather than, oh, no, we've lost another ally. Isn't this terrible? It's going to happen um, because, you know, smaller countries, they need the economic benefits. And China has has a lot of clout in the economic in the economic field. I, I do think that this upcoming WHA assembly is really going to kind of show who Taiwan's real friends are. Uh, the the coalition that is now forming to support Taiwan, when we see the final vote, I think we'll see a lot more clearly. Whether or not Taiwan loses yet another diplomatic partner or not, as Nicola noted, is not necessarily the something worth wringing your hands over. Um, China will crow about it, but it's fundamentally, I think, really Taiwan's friends are now really actually show, coming out of the woodwork and showing themselves right now over the WHO and WHA issue. And we have to take a short break now, but we will return after these rather important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan this week, and as the June the 6th recall vote against Kaohsiung Mayor Han Guoyu is fast approaching, KMT members are already making plans for his possible removal from office and are putting forward possible candidates to run if there's a by-election. Now, KMT Chairman Johnny Jung is one of the names on the list. Former New Taipei Mayor Eric Ju is another, while some from within the party are arguing that Kaohsiung Deputy Mayor Li Suchuan would be the best choice. Arguments being put forward for the three possible candidates are as such... 
For Johnny Jung, it would cement his place as a strong party leader. For Eric Jew, it's a belief that he will be able to rally support at the grassroots level, while Lee is seen as getting support for his possible candidacy due to his being considered a safe bet because he's from neighbouring Pingdong County and is being viewed as less political. So Donovan, seeing as Johnny Jung is a lawmaker from your neck of the woods, can you see him ditching his job in Taichung to run as mayor of Kaohsiung should the need arise? I'd be surprised, to be honest with you. Um, he, he was re-elected here in the Fengyuan district with a pretty large margin. So he's got a pretty good job. He's also busy being the KMT chair. And I, I would guess that he, he would like to be re-elected in May next year because he came in as a, in a by-election. So if he becomes, if he decides to go and run for the mayor of Kaohsiung, he's putting himself at risk of losing he, he's gonna, there's going to be a lot of pressure on him to give up his seat, which is a fairly safe one and one where he's very popular, to run in a very risky election. Kaohsiung leans green, and there's a very good chance that that whoever tries to run, a, a, if Han is indeed recalled, uh, that the DPP is going to have a massive advantage. So he would put himself at risk of losing his seat in Feng Yuan, and losing in Kaohsiung, taking a huge hit in, ter- in terms of his prestige. I think he's got too much to lose. Now, in terms of Eric Chu, he doesn't have as much to lose because he doesn't really have a job right now. But it, it, running for mayor of Kaohsiung would be kind of a step down because he was a popular mayor of New Taipei City, reelected twice there. That's the biggest city in the country. Kaohsiung's the third largest city, so that's kind of a step down. But on the other hand, if he does have his eye on regaining the KMT chair, chairmanship in May next year, then this would be a way to get his name out there, get some publicity. But again, I think he's a fairly shrewd guy. I think he knows that it would be an uphill climb coming down from the north to run into Kaohsiung. That does, he would, have a, he would be an uphill battle to win there. Now, as far as Lee Sichuan, I don't know a lot about this guy. Um, he, but he, he, the, the argument is that, yeah, he, there's a, not as much political heat on him as Han Guoyu. However, just right off the bat, his name has Sichuan province in the name. Uh, it does seem like, you know, that's not a good, good position to start from. Some other names I've seen floated about, uh, Wang Jinping, I, I don't know. Uh, he, He's a you know he was a he was a legislator from there, and he switched to being a party list rather than a directly elected uh, legislator from Kaohsiung a, a while ago, which suggests to me he thought that it might that he might be at some risk of losing it, it being an elected directly elected legislator. So I have a sneaking suspicion he doesn't think it's viable. That's just a guess. Now, um, so, I mean, there, there's been some other options. Wu Duanyi was another one that I saw put out there. He's a, he was the former mayor of Kaohsiung. He was the former KMT chair and did a disastrous job, uh, lost the last election badly. Um, but he's been the vice premier. Uh, he's been the premier. He's been the vice president. So, again, this is kind of a step down as a job. So I, it looks to me like Lee Sichuan... Right now, looks like the best bet. And Nicola, 
Uh, well, I think if someone like Johnny Chung ran, that would just be making exactly the same mistakes that got Han Kuo-yu into this mess in the first place in in trying to do too much and neglecting um, your own constituents and neglecting the job that you already have. He has a meaty job already and he has to um, try and make the KMT into a, a credible opposition again and and then um, you know he has his hands full, so I, it just it wouldn't make sense at all if if he ran for a big job like that when Han Kuo Yu was was deeply criticised for um, becoming elected as mayor and then immediately deciding to to run as president. It, it just wouldn't be a good look. Um, so uh, maybe someone like Eric Ju, uh, Eric Chu, who has already got mayoral experience, would be a good candidate because that that seems to be when when I was there in in December and just talking to people before the election, a lot of people were saying that they they just wanted someone to run the city. They wanted someone to know how how to do that job, how to do a mayoral uh, function, how to to um, address issues that they cared about, and and he has that experience already. So I I, I think that would make him a strong candidate. Right, and it's nearly that time of year in Taiwan where the summer electricity rates kick in and we all pay more for running our plug-in electrical devices. But a survey this week released by the National Taiwan University's Risk Society and Policy Research Centre shows that over 60% of the public are supportive of paying more for their electricity as part of the government's efforts to reform the island's energy sector and use more renewables. So Nicola, would you be willing to pay more if we had more renewables and we didn't have such pollution due to coal burning power plants. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's it's not as if um, electricity bills in Taiwan are, are hugely um, expensive anyway. And I think people do really care about quality of life as well as just expenses. And and um, uh, environmental concerns are, are shooting up the agenda for people. They want to be able to breathe clean air. And also Taiwan has an issue with um, power supply and that, that needs to be addressed. And if, if they want to reach their target of 20% renewables by 2025, then the cost has got to come from somewhere. And Donovan, of course, you breathe in the Taijong power plant's air every day. <coughs> I'm sorry, what? <laughs> Yeah, no, it, 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 I actually found the, the results of this survey very interesting. Um, it, it, right, now here, right here locally in Taichung, there's, there's a lot of complaint where they feel like, it, you know, we've got the air here that we do partly because we, you know, the Taichung power plant feeds power to the north and areas outside of Taichung and to power a lot of industry. And so people feel like basically, but the cost of that is in Taichung's lungs. Um, yeah, and there, you know, there have been a, a lot of jokes and with variations on the theme that this is all paid. You know, the air is cleaned here by you know Taichung's lungs. Um, but but yeah, as Nicola noted, Taiwan's power and water, for that matter, uh, are very cheap by international standards. And so I found that the, the survey showed this. I found it very interesting because it seems that people definitely recognize that Taiwan's power is low and by international standards kind of artificially low the 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 rates and that paying a little bit more might actually pay off in terms of quality of life in the long run. But apparently 18.8% of respondents to this survey were opposed to paying more for electricity, so they obviously think the electricity rates here are high anyway. Maybe they should go live somewhere else. Anyway, before we go this week, we've talked about Taiwan's Pro Baseball League getting global attention in recent weeks amid the coronavirus outbreak, but it's not the only sport here in Taiwan that utilises a bat and a ball to now be catching the eye of overseas media outlets – 
as the first ever Taiwan 10-10 Super League cricket tournament is also making news in other countries where the sport has ground to a halt because of the coronavirus shutdowns. And I spoke with league presenter Priya Lalwani Puswani about it. So good evening, Priya. Good evening, Gavin. And the first ever Taipei 10-10 tournament is now underway in the capital and apparently it's being live-streamed with English commentary and is getting quite a bit of attention from cricket fans around the world. It definitely is. We started it three weekends ago and there are eight teams playing right now because there's so many countries where you can't have sports right now. So Taiwan is not only streaming baseball around the world but also cricket. Of course, a quick look on the internet. I found several websites covering the scores and the games. Generally, we've got India.com, ZNews.India.com, India Sport and DNA India. So obviously, people in India, obviously they play cricket there. They're quite into watching the Taiwan tournament. Yes, because India has the um, professional league, IPL, which is on, on pause right now. And so people need some sports, I suppose, in their lives. And this is... Uh, not the, uh, the official streaming partner is actually Sports Tiger, and all the others take their feed from Sports Tiger, the app. Are you getting any response from fans in India and elsewhere in the world? Yes, we get messages. So we have the website and the Facebook page. So the Taipei T10 League gets messages, and also Taiwan Cricket, the organizers, are also getting messages every day. And what about is- which are the good teams, uh, who should we vote for, or things like that, what, what is the schedule for next week like, things like that. Right, and what countries are these messages coming from apart from India? UK, South Africa, even the US. Obviously the teams are mostly expats, but you have local players playing for them. Very, very few. It's mostly expats, so people from South Africa, India, Sri Lanka, um, UK playing for all of these teams. There have been a few players from Taiwan, but they're not at the level to play in the league yet. What about when you're playing? Obviously, local people, have they been walking past the cricket ground, which is part of a park, and have they been watching you play out of curiosity? Very, very curious. There's also there's cycling paths around it, and it's right by the river. So we do get a lot of uh, spectators outside the nets, of course. We don't let them in because of the virus situation. We check everyone's temperature and do the questionnaire at the entrance. Only teams can come in. But we do have a lot of people on the outside walking around and asking, what is this? So we're happy to explain a bit of the rules to them and the similarities and differences compared to baseball. And have you met any local people that actually know the rules? No. That would be a first, though, really, wouldn't it? Yes. Yes, everyone's very curious, though, and very happy to learn, and they take pictures, some even take videos. And, of course, these are amateur teams, but, I mean, are any of the players, have they played professionally before for, like, local teams in their countries? When they were younger, so maybe in their teens, when they were students, a few of them have, but right now they're all amateur players, and they're engineers, students, um, chefs, running restaurants, entrepreneurs in Taiwan. So right now they're not amateurs, but they have played when they were younger. And the teams come from all around Taiwan? That is correct. We have from as far as uh, Jai, uh, Shinju, and quite a few from Taipei. And what about the cricket pitch? Oh, that has been quite tough. This is the Ingfong Cricket Ground. You can find that on Google Maps. It was given by the Taipei City government to the Taiwan Cricket to manage and hold games. However, we need to use it and we need to maintain it well in order to continue uh, having 
that at our disposal. So it is managed by the Pakistan Cricket Club, PCCT. They take care of the, they, they clean, uh, cut the grass regularly. But because of this league, we've had to mow the, mow the grass every Friday evening and then have people, volunteers, rake it Saturday morning so it's ready to play. It's not a proper, full, professional um, cricket pitch. We have got mats, and uh, that's what they play on. But we're making do, and it looks great on, on, the, on the video. If you've seen the stream, it looks really good. It looks very professional. And have you had any local television news crews going down to see you? Not yet. We hope to get some because the finals are this weekend. We've had some coverage on the English uh, newspaper, in the English newspapers, and Focus Taiwan has covered us. We've also had the honor of uh, receiving the Taipei City Government Deputy Spokesperson, Mr. Chen. He was with us last Sunday on Mother's Day and um, gave a short speech and uh, encouraged all of the players along. He we hope to get a bit more media coverage. He didn't take his mother to see a cricket game, though, on Mother's Day. I, didn't, I take it that didn't happen. <laughs> no, he came alone, but he wished her over the air. So, of course, the live stream has English commentary. Yes, it has. We have two very professional commentators, Silius and Craig, who are doing a wonderful job, and we've received lots of positive comments from our viewers about the, the commentators. And because, but because it's in English, so a lot of the channels in India are then doing a Hindi one on top of that. So that also brings up the viewers. That was me in conversation with Taipei 1010 Super League presenter Priya Lalwani Paswani. And that's where we'll leave it here on Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps, and I've been joined in the studio today by Nicola Smith. Thanks for having me. And on the telephone by Donovan Smith. And great to be back on the show. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on iTunes and Android podcast apps where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.